with the Howe Library in Hanover, New Hampshire. My, my name is Rachel Barenbaum. I'm your host tonight and the author of Atomic Anna. I'm so excited to be here to introduce you to our author tonight, Ruben de Goyado. This is the last in our fall series. Uh, here at Check This Out, we introduce you to books and authors we think you should be reading and talking about. We're focusing tonight on this amazing, amazing debut, The Family Izquierdo. Ruben de Goyado is here to talk about it. We're so excited to have him. Hey, Ruben. Hello. Thanks for joining us. Hello. And Thanks, thank man. you to the Howe Library Corporation for sponsoring us tonight. We're thrilled to be here. Thank you so, so much for having me. Great. So before we get started, I'm just going to read a little bit of uh, your biography to introduce you to our listeners. And then we're going to jump right into our questions in the interview. So. Awesome. Ruben de Goyado is an educator from Texas and the author of the young adult novel Throw. His fiction has appeared in Belois Fiction Journal, Gulf Coast, Hayden's Ferry Review, and Image. Ruben, tell us what is this amazing debut about? The, the book, The Family Schedule, is about a family in South Texas, large, proud, boisterous family that uh, is also beset by a purportedly beset or not, you got to read the book to find out, by a neighbor, jealous neighbor who has cursed them and uh, is jealous of their success. And the resulting uh, results of the curse is uh, manifest in a lot of different ways. But through it all, the family is uh, brought together by love, the blood they share and their faith. Yeah. I love that. The great summary. Um, so one of the things that really drew me to this book was I love a little bit of the backstory and that this started as a short story. Right. You start with one story. I think people are afraid to start on a novel because they think they need to write the whole thing. But actually, you started with one story that led to another that wove together to become this novel. Um, so I would love to hear you talking about sort of how this came together. All right. So the the very first so the, the book is structured in such a way that there's these vignettes that point to the past <clears throat> that break up the sections. But the very first of the main narrative, the very first chapter was the first story I wrote probably about 25 years ago uh, titled Turroco. And um, that got published in Hayden's Very Review, a literary journal. And um, what ended up happening was I wrote this like intended it to just be this one story about a family. Um, and then I wrote another one about the same family, same characters. Uh, the sec the very second one that you read is was the second story I wrote about the family. Uh, that, that was um, probably about a year later. And then the third story was about the same family. And then, oh yeah, there's an aunt and she's a hairdresser. I'm going to write that story. And so it, it it ended up where I was I was spending all of my time as a writer focused on this one fictional family, and what I what I discovered pretty quickly was that each family member had their own individual story, but they also had this larger overarching story about this curse uh, and this jealous neighbor. And so uh, essentially, I had at, at the time what I thought was a collection, but the more people who who read who read the book. Uh, or read the manuscripts. I, you know, actually, I think you have a novel here. It's not. A, it's not a conventional novel. It doesn't follow the conventional structures of a novel, but it's a novel nevertheless. And that we're telling one unified story. Yeah, I loved it. Right, because we saw the family from sort of different perspectives and at different 
periods and time and different moments, but it all weaves together as one coherent story. Um, so I'm hoping that I can ask you to please treat us uh, to a little reading. If you could just read a paragraph so we can get a sense of your voice and really what the book sounds like. Will do. Thank this you. Is a, this is from the chapter, What You Bury, What You Burn. And it is told, uh, it's a story about the burning of a recliner, which they believe to be cursed. The fire soon did its work of disintegrating wood and cloth, exposing springs and frame. The foam popped as it melted away. Then there were the words, the unintelligible guttural whispers that could be heard coming from the air, from a space between the flames and smoke. Though you could not understand the message exactly, you knew the intent, how these susurrations foretold the demise of the Esquerdo family only after a long period of suffering. Victoria was always the one to interpret spiritual things, but this much you knew. Just beautiful. Thank you. I love that paragraph that you chose. Um, and I love also because I feel like it leads right into my first question here, um, which is there's an undercurrent in this entire book, really, of violence. Um, it's sort of a quiet undercurrent. Um, there aren't so many violent scenes. And yet I found myself often sort of nervous, right, waiting for an explosion to come. Um, and I guess it really started off in the beginning. There was a little paragraph. I'm going to read it. <laughs> um, not as sort of beautifully as you, I'm sure, but just to give us a sense of this undercurrent, because what it really seems paired with as a theme in this novel is manhood and what it means to be a man. So you write, um, there's this scene, um, a knife is a tool, but it is also there pr to protect you and the ones that you love. A knife is a part of a man, but you have to be a man to know when to use it. So there's a quiet moment where you're inserting a knife, right? The suggestion that it could be used, right? And sort of weaving that together with, with being a man. Um, can you talk about that and those themes that I'm seeing in there? Well, I think, um, well, a couple of different things are happening there. One, one is there's a somewhat of a trope, maybe trope is not the right word, but, but uh, I guess a generalization that, that Mexicans carry knives, right? Um, at least when I grew up, that that was that was kind of a gross generalization, and and uh, the intent there, you know, is is not always a, a good way of characterizing Mexicans or Mexican American people. And so, what I wanted to show in this little scene is that for Papa Tavo, for the for the you know the grandfather who is the patriarch of the family, um, it's more seen as a tool, but it's also, as he, as he describes, it's not for lashing out, it's not for violence per se, but it is in defense of the family if necessary, because he comes from a different generation and a very different place. And so that comment that he makes, you see that knife in, a, in another chapter, that there is some, uh, you, you know, there is, it, it does come up in a, in a potentially violent way, I'll, I'll say. It, it comes up a little bit later on. So it's just how, how things get misinterpreted over generations was what I was trying to say. Hmm, that's so interesting. Because it's also, I mean, anytime you put a weapon in a scene, right, you're thinking as the reader, is someone going to use it? 
right? <laughs> so there's that moment. But I'm glad you brought up the grandfather, of course, because that's in the scene. He's the patriarch. Um, and he literally starts a company to build houses, right? Or a sheetrock, right? And they're, um, and the business is building as he's building the family. And there's that theme of, you know, the family growing. Can you talk about that and how you incorporated that with the business and the brothers? You know, I hadn't even thought of that, actually. That, that's always interesting <laughs> when people read your work. They see things that you, you, I had never intended that, but but that makes a lot of sense. And I'm going to go with that in, in future <laughs> interviews. But um, glad to help. Yeah, there you go. You I don't know, think it was accidental. I really don't. I mean, no. I think you had it in there. Um, so I, I would say I would say that with with the, the business that he has, it, it's almost this microcosm of the American dream. Right. So the flip side of it is it's the American dream in a land that his people used to live in. Right. So he, he overnight his people have become foreigners in their own country as you know, it's right right across the river where, where they live. And so what I was what I was wanting to say with that is that. You know the 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 barriers that he experiences. It's it's not the typical story where you know there's racism or um, you know he, he it's the typical immigrant story where where they're poor and they have to uh, you know bring themselves up from nothing. What I what I was trying to say was okay. So he's built this thing. Huh? I like what you did there. He's he's literally he's literally a builder, but he's also building his family. What I wanted to show was what comes after. Right, because we we read lots of great immigrant stories, and but that wasn't the story I wanted to tell necessarily. What I wanted to say was the generations that come after, you know, a, a forebear has built something. In, in this case, Papa Tavo, the patriarch, Papa Tavo Izquierdo, Octavo, Octavio Izquierdo. What comes after that fact? How do the yeah. generations either succeed or fail based off of the 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 ground that has already been laid by the by the parent? Well, and of course, one of the, the things that comes right out of that is the curse, right? And Gonzalo and the sort of actions that he took. And I won't give any spoilers away, but there is, again, um, right, there is a scene that is disturbing. There's some violence to it. In the beginning, we see him when he's drinking too much, right, with his wife, Victoria, and he's jealous. Um, and we see this moment. And um, I just felt like his story and Victoria really then became the center of the family because of the curse that was following everyone. So how did you come to this idea of the curse? So where I live in the Rio Grande Valley, um, it's pretty common to, to hear about, you know, curses and brujeria. And brujeria is, is witchcraft, the Mexican version of it. Um, and then curanderismo is, is the Mexican folk medicine. And, and it's, it's very common. And, and maybe it was more common in the generations before, but it's still very present here. So, so for me, it became this, this, um, almost like this mythical thing where I could tell a story of, of good and evil, um, about a family that is, you know, that is, that is fallen in many ways, but that is also, you know, has their, their moments of triumph. Um, and so it, it just, to me, it became a, a way to tell a mythical story using my own cultural uh, experience using my own culture that I, I've, you know, been living in for, for years and my family has lived down here for generations. But I love that you also wove myth into religion, right? I mean, religion itself, 
was such an important part of the story. You even have a whole scene where they're, um, right, one of the um, cousins, I guess, is dressing up as the Virgin Mary, mm-hmm. right, and, and having this religious experience. And um, it, it, can you talk about how those two relate to one another, this sort of mythical or witchcraft, right, um, and the idea of a curse and religion, how those weave together? Well, I think, you know, for me, if I'm telling a story, and I can only speak for myself as, you know, my family as a Mexican-American, Chicano, uh, for me to not include religion is actually more inauthentic than if I include it. Because if you look at our, if you look at our culture down here, um, and I can only speak for, you know, my, my little experience. If you look at our culture, it is, it's embedded in everything. Um, and, and, you know, we have all different brands. I mean, when you read a lot of Mexican-American literature, the majority of the families, you know, you you have this picture of a very uh, staunchly Catholic, overbearing mom, right? But you don't see what you don't see is the quietly faithful uh, mother, like you see in Valentina. You don't see uh, full gospel, you know, charismatic Christianity represented. You don't. You certainly don't see the confluence of brujeria. Uh, curanderismo, uh, you know, this Protestantism and and Catholicism mixed in together, but it's it's everywhere. It's it's very present in our culture. So I was just trying to tell a story that is true to what I know and what I've what I seen growing up, and and just what I know to be true about our gente, our people down here. That's amazing. I mean, it did feel it, for me it was a different world, right? Having not been a part of it. I, I did feel like you really pulled me into that. Um, and, and I just loved it, the journey down there. Um, but I wanted to talk about the women in the book, um, and in particular, Victoria, because um, I felt like she was really essential character uh, in my mind. And, and you went out of your way in the stories to explain that she worked as a nurse, that she could be independent, right? She wasn't relying just on her husband, that she could mm-hmm. walk away. And yet she was the glue that held everyone together. And I just love that. And I would love to hear you talk about, can you talk about Victoria and tell us how you thought about her? Victoria is is an interesting character to me. She always has been. And she was, she was the first character that I think I had a, a really clear picture of from the, from the very beginning. She, Victoria is an outsider. Uh, like I mentioned earlier that, you know, everybody in the fat for the most part, except for maybe Maggie and, and, and Dina, well, Dina also, but um, most of the characters are very Catholic, um, but you you enter, you have this uh, woman, Victoria, marrying into the family who is very not Catholic, and she's, she makes no bones about it. You know, she doesn't right. pray the rosary. She doesn't say the Apostles' Creed like everybody else. She almost makes a point of it in some ways. Um, so she's, as, as I think as Gonzalo said, or one of the characters said, she's, she's Protestant in, in, every sense of the, in every sense of the word, right? Um, so the other, the other thing about Victoria is that she doesn't, until you, until you get to the very end, I, I don't think she really knows the power and influence that she wields. She sees herself as this outsider, but she's very much uh, someone that they all count on. You know, she's the one that, um, that, that the, the grandmother Valentina calls in the middle of the night to go, to go actually confront, uh, Contreras, who's the antagonist in the book. She's the one that makes her makes it uh, a, a point of supporting her husband while they do this thing that I just, you know, this chapter that I read where they're, they're you know, burning this chair in the middle of the night. So she's 
she's a leader, but she doesn't see herself that way until the very end. So that's kind of my journey for, for Victoria. Um, and, and the one thing I, I did know is, was her name was very important to me. Um, because when you, if you look at the name, Victor, Victor, Victoria, she's a winner. She's the, the ultimately she's the winner of the, of the book. She's the hero in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I love that you mentioned that you really don't realize that she doesn't come together until towards the end, probably the last 20% of the book. And, and that was really when I also latched onto her and was like, oh, I get it now. That's her role. So very yeah. well done. Um, and also you tackle some very big themes in this book, right? Postpartum depression, anxiety, alcoholism. Right? There's some, some dark things going on that your characters confront, but they're also very real. Um, right? It feels like a, a real family that you have presented. Um, can you talk a little bit about how these big ideas, right? These big themes came to you. I don't know if there's one in particular you wanted to pick out and talk about. Um, wow. <laughs> That's a big question. Let's when talk you, about anxiety. When you, when you like throw it out there, I'm like, yeah, I did a lot. Like I put a lot of stuff into that book. Um, <laughs> I'll take I'll take postpartum depression. I'll, let me okay. just, uh, to deal with it, the question in a in a larger sense. I'll, I'll I'll get specific. So, in in the Mexican American culture, I would argue, um, and people may disagree, but in our culture, we don't talk about mental health. I mean, I think we've gotten better about it, but growing up, mental health was not something that we talked about a lot. And I wanted to have a conversation. I'm no expert in mental health. But I certainly wanted to begin a conversation with this book. And, and, and when I talk about the postpartum piece, um, that is certainly something because when you, if you take Mexican motherhood, it's supposed to be ideal. Our, our mothers are supposed to be strong, be, being able to like, like Valentina raising 10 kids and being able to do it without a hitch and not a, without a complaint. And so when I took, when I took Victoria on this journey of, of she's the one who experiences postpartum with her one son, um, I wanted to show that it's something that we we should have talked about, like she should have talked about it more, but seeing how ultimately um, because of the family being there, because of her husband, even though he's so complicated and he has his, his tendencies to, to, you know, towards, towards uh, toxic masculinity, he was actually very nurturing when she needed him to be a nurturing husband. And taking care of their son in the middle of the night, taking care of the feedings. So I, I, I just wanted to, I wanted to have that conversation, and maybe I, I bit off too much because, <laughs> as you mentioned, like I, alcoholism, postpartum depression, boom, 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 <laughs> anxiety, all anxiety, all these things. But but certainly, I, I wanted to have that conversation that maybe uh, someone needed to have in their own family if they're if they're reading the book. And then from what I've heard from readers, uh, I've had I've had readers thanking me you know, for, for dealing with neurodiversity and in, in, in some of the characters also, but also dealing with some of these mental health issues that we don't normally talk about. Yeah. I mean, even in the very beginning, there's a scene, um, the scene actually in this, um, the chapter where they're uh, buying the knife, right? Where the grandfather, the patriarch knows that his daughter is not eating enough, right? So he knows already there's an eating disorder, but yeah. he doesn't want to talk about it. He just brushes it, mm-hmm. right? Under, you know, like brushes to the side. Let's not talk about that. But you still, I think that is very real to the way some people experience that with their families. So how did you figure out how to frame that, right? Or how hard was that to to get that approach to something like an eating disorder? Well, I think um, 
I had to write the character. I mean, uh, so many things, but I think the, the main thing is I had to write each character with love. And, and when I approached each of those characters and, and their different issues, it had to be in such a way that I'm, I'm talking about my own sister. I'm talking about my own aunt and, and how would she want me to phrase that? How, how would she want me to handle that? So that I didn't, I didn't come off as taking it lightly as taking it as something that it's, you know, I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to expose her or him, you know, for, for the issues that they are. And so that's another comment that I've heard is that you, 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 me, meaning me, I've drawn the characters uh, in a loving way. And that's, that's really at the end of the day, as I, as I was writing the book, that's what I wanted to do with these characters is, is cause I, I love them. I mean, I've, I've, like I said, I've lived with them for 25 years. Um, when we were talking earlier, I wrote the first story in, in 19, you know, 97, and then I, it got published like 98, 99, right around there. So I've been living with this family for a very long time. So it, it's incumbent upon me. It, it's a, it's a, like almost a moral imperative for me to do my best to get it right. Yeah, that's great. I love that. All right. I'd love to switch gears a little bit and talk about the publication process, being an author. Um, so you mentioned, right, that you wrote this first story. It was published for the first time in the uh, late 90s, and this came together. So um, can you talk about, some, I think there's a misconception that some people go out, you have to have the perfect finished novel to sell it. But actually you, you know, pulled, pulled this book together by publishing piece by piece. So could you talk about that journey, the actual publication journey? Yeah, um, I I was getting, I was writing a story maybe every year, every couple of years. And then at some point I had, I think, I think I had like 15 put together. And uh, meanwhile, I had this other novel throw, which is about Cirilo Izquierdo. He's the, he's the oldest nephew, oldest cousin in the family. And um, I, I had sent that out several places and, and it never got published. Um, and then in 2015, I, uh, I submitted it again. Um, and it, it eventually get landed with uh, Slant Books. My first publisher, um, Gregory Wolf, amazing, amazing editor. He picked it up, and it got published, and it did well, and it won awards. Uh, got a lot, you know, got on several lists. It did very well for a small press book. And then that gave me, because meanwhile, I, side by side, I had the, I had this book, and it wasn't called The Family Schedule at the time. I think I'd call it Host after one of the stories in there, and it was a collection. So, I, but I had this side by side book. And, and with that publication of the first book and how well it did, it gave me the courage to do something I never thought I'd be able to do, which was find an agent or seek out an agent. So I did that. Um, I, did, I, I think I did a Twitter pitch event. And on the fifth try, I got a phone call for representation by the amazing uh, agent that I have, Tamar Radzinski. Um, and then within six months, the book sold. So my my journey it was kind of like uh, twenty five years of of not a lot happening, a couple of stories here and there every couple of years, you know, virtual obscurity, you know, literary speaking, um, and then it was like really fast within within the last couple of years. So then boom, um, it, you know, people will plug and plug and plug and plug away, um, and they'll get a little bit better. Mine was like I pretty much wrote and then I stopped for you know maybe ten years. And then boom, it happened all of a sudden the last couple. Amazing. So what was your favorite part to write? I, I love Maggie. I don't know if you remember Maggie. She's the hairdresser. Um, 
I, I have fun every time. And I'm working on a, the, I guess, the 30 skit of the book right now. And it's Maggie's story. And she's this character. She's very vivacious, larger than life. She's, she likes to say things to, to get a rise out of people. She's exagerada, as her sisters call her. She's very exaggerated. Um, and so that, to me, I have the most fun when I can get into Maggie's voice because she gives me license to just to be funny and, and you know, uh, tell some serious things as well, but also anyway. I love that. And the third book. Well, I'm ready whenever you're ready to put it out there. I'm ready to read it. We all are. Um, and can you offer some advice? Do you have any words of wisdom for people who are trying to get started, who are new writers or maybe who've been at it for a while? Yeah, I, I, my first thing I always say is you, you need to read as widely as possible and uh, read not just what you want to write, but read outside of either your genre or even read poetry. You know, I, I do read poetry myself. I'm a fiction writer. I, I'm a terrible poetry writer, but I read, I read it. Um, and I think it impacts how, how I write the fiction, you know, because I like to be more lyrical too. So read widely. That would be first step. And then number number two, I would say, is to be kind to yourself. And I think a lot of writers, there's there's a myth that if you don't get published by the time you're 30, you're never going to make it. You're an object failure. Just give up. I, I, I got my first book published at 47 and, and my, my next one at, at 50. So I don't think, you know, People should be as harsh to themselves as they are. I would say be kind to yourself and, and remember that your timeline is your timeline. Yeah, that's painful to think you have to be published by 30. Whew, yeah. That's and a lot I, of pressure. I, I believe that. I believe that for a lot of years. And when it didn't happen, I hit 30. And when it didn't happen, I thought, well, I just need to give up because they oh. only want to read you know, books by, by younger authors. I mean, there's, I, I think in a lot of ways we've we've given youth uh more important more importance in the writing world than i think that you know writers actually believe in themselves you know but there's a wisdom to your stories right that was built in through all those years yes <laughs> i believe it i saw it in there um so i also want to ask listeners love to know what was the hardest part about your publishing journey i mean you've mentioned a few things but what sticks out in your mind is the hardest part about getting this book published oh the waiting the waiting <laughs> oh my goodness so i knew the book had been published uh probably about 18 months before it was actually we were able to announce it um, and and you've, I don't know if you've experienced that yourself being an author, but um, it, it just seemed like it took so long to just be able to announce it. And then once it was announced, it's like, OK, it's coming out in another 18 months. Oh, you know, so it's like to me, the, the hardest part of, of this whole journey has just been waiting for that pub publication day. And so when September, you know, 6th came around, it was like, ah, finally, I get to do that. And so now. You know, the, the waiting part now is like, OK, we've submitted to some places. Am I going to get any awards or anything? So now it's more waiting. Yeah. So, right. And well, of course, you did. You've gotten amazing reviews and you've been listed for all kinds of all kinds of lists and accolades. It's amazing. Um, so it took three years from the time you sold the book until it was published. You know, maybe I'm, I'm overshooting it, but it seemed like About, that. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Because I think people often think writers are overnight successes. 
And they don't think about the fact that actually it's been 30 years or 25 years, right? This book has been in the making and in the works. Yeah. I I just remember waiting a long time. And then I think I sent a few uh, vague, hey, I have some good news, but I can't tell you what it is tweets out there. But, you know, that that's not as gratifying as, you know, sending that clunky publishers uh, marketplace you know, right. Becca, yes. and everybody you know always blows up to try to read what kind of yes. stuff like that <laughs> there right there that is one of the secrets that every writer should be talking about right that moment where you get to put out that screenshot it's amazing yeah. um so i wanted to ask uh really quickly because we only have a minute left what is it that you want people to take away from this family izquierdo i mean they're so deeply in your like I would say in your kishka, which is a Yiddish word for like in your soul, right? In your heart. Like, what is it about this family that you want us to be taking away? I, I would say that um, despite trials, tribulations, family prevails, faith prevails. And, and, and despite all of those things, you know, those, those family and faith for me, those, those are the two most important things. And I would say if if you get anything, nothing else from the book, that, that's the two things that I would say. Family and faith. Well, that's beautiful. Ruben de Gallardo, thank you so much for joining me. Congratulations on this amazing book, The Family Izquierdo. It's beautiful, beautiful book, beautiful cover. Thank you so much for joining us today, everybody who's listening. This is the end of our fall series of Check This Out here at the Howe Library in Hanover, New Hampshire. Thank you again to the Howe Library Corporation. Thank you to our amazing producers today, Jared Jenish and Megan Coleman. We love the hard work that you put in and really appreciate it. Join us again this spring when the series kicks off again. We'll have six new amazing authors that we think you should be reading and listening to and talking about this spring. Thank you everybody. Have a great winter. Thank you.